June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Good day and welcome to America Changed Forever. I'm your host, Jeff Pegues. The White House is urging Americans in Ukraine to leave as tension rises in the region with Russia continuing to mass troops along the Ukrainian border. Any assembled Russian units move across the Ukrainian border, that is an invasion. How will this situation be resolved? Also, President Biden will have a chance to name a replacement for Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. This is an opportunity presidents relish. Former President Trump was able to name three Supreme Court justices, so how many could President Biden ultimately have? But first, let's discuss Ukraine and Vladimir Putin. He's tough. He's KGB. Um, and he'll remain KGB, but at the same well, look, time... Uh, Putin's a former KGB uh, agent. He's a thug. Uh, the Putin Russian wants to bring us down, and he is an old KGB agent. I've never met Vladimir Putin, but I know enough about him to know he's a gangster. He's, a, he's basically an organized crime figure that runs a country. And ultimately, I think, as a deal, to deal with uh, Putin, you need to deal from strength. This is very KGB. What's the end game for him? John Seifer, who is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center and co-founder of Spycraft Entertainment, joins us. He had a 28-year career in the CIA, serving multiple overseas tours as chief of station. He knows a thing or two about Vladimir Putin. John, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you, Jeff. You too. So if you could get into the head <laughs> of Vladimir Putin, where I think you've been before, what is his goal here? Well, he's got he has several sort of practical goals. You know, he's um he, he wants the US out of Europe. He wants to weaken or destroy NATO. In fact, you know, when he first met the head of NATO, you know, 10, 15 years ago. The head of NATO said to him, you know, my goal is to improve our relationship with Russia. And he said, well, sir, you know what my goal is? My goal is to make sure that your organization no longer exists. So he wants the U.S. out of Europe. He wants NATO to be destroyed. And he would like countries on his periphery to be essentially vassals and pro-Russian supporters. But at the end of the day, the most important thing for him is political survival at home. And he cannot afford to have countries you know, nearby who are successful and democratic because it might give the wrong idea to his people that that's possible. I always like uh, talking to you because of your time with the CIA, uh, working on issues related to Russia, but you were in Moscow for how long? I was there for two years serving in the embassy there. So what is it like being a CIA officer in Russia? Well, as you know, you know, CIA officers around the world, our job is to collect intelligence that we provide to professional analysts 
so that they can inform our policymakers about issues. And so the CIA is only there to collect information that the U.S. government can't get any other way. So if we can get it from satellites or business people or diplomats or military attaches, we certainly don't need to steal that information. But there's some stuff that's so important. We need to find people who have access to sensitive and secret information that we can get. Now, in Russia, it's especially difficult because it's sort of a police state, you know, it's, it's a follow-on of the Soviet Union. And so to them, it's incredibly important. In fact, Vladimir Putin is a former KGB officer. And so it's a very, very difficult place to operate because you know, all of our diplomats are followed all the time. Our houses are bugged with audio and video. Um, they, they stop and question everybody we talk to to make sure that they know what we're doing and can try to stop anything that we might be trying to collect. So it's a very, very uh, challenging and difficult place for us to operate. Was your home bugged? Absolutely. So much so that, you know, I think, you know, everything we did was audio and videoed. And so before you go to an assignment like that, we have to go through a whole series of psychological tests and other things, you know, to be used to knowing that people are watching you 24 <laughs> seven. Yeah. How do you get used to that? <laughs> I mean, did you have, were you solo over there? Did you have family with you? I, I was there as a young officer. I was single. In fact, I met my wife in Moscow. She's an American, was from the embassy. Uh, and, and met her there. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful and fascinating place to visit. It, you know, Russia is an incredible, varied country with really interesting people, but it's had this long, unfortunate history of poor leaders and, and a repressive society. And so it's, it's an important place for us to understand, but it's, they do everything they can to make sure that we, we don't understand what's happening inside the Kremlin. Well, so what do you think, and, and this is why I like talking about your background first before we get into some of the the contemporary issues this country is facing as it uh, as this president uh, negotiates with Vladimir Putin on Ukraine what could russia be if Vladim- if vladimir putin were no longer leading that country oh that's an excellent question and and you know it, it it's quite sad i think a lot of people who work on russia uh, you know, have a real love for the place. There's incredible culture and incredible history, very, very well-educated people, even in the Soviet days, you know, education was very seen as a central thing. And so incredibly brilliant people oftentimes, and, you know, we, we, we see it nowadays with cyber hacking and ransomware, but, you know, there's people who are really, really brilliant in that part of the world. And so um, because of the repression and because of the sort of poor government, They've never been able to really be an open society that could sort of commercially be successful and their economy has never really taken off. But it has the potential to be, you know, one of the world's great economic powers. You know, they they seem to be more interested in being a security power or a military power. But uh, Russia has an incredible, incredible amount of uh, potential. Okay. And so looking to the situation now, as it stands, how does this end? (laughs) Well, let me step back a little bit. You know, Vladimir Putin's been in power now for almost 20 years. He has a tremendous resentment against the West. And there's there's sort of two reasons for it. One is he actually needs a straw man. He needs someone to blame. You know, when you're a country, you've been in charge for 20 years and the economy goes down and, you know, he's created this corrupt economy with, uh, you know, his cronies around him who need to be bought off and paid off. Uh, he can't really build a, a 21st century economy. So he has to blame somebody. So he blames the United States. He blames the West. So he has to have the U.S. as sort of someone to blame there. But he also really blames the U.S. for, you know, he's created this narrative that 
you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, we took advantage of Russia, that we weakened Russia, that, you know, we, we, we took actions in the Balkans and other places that we increased NATO and moved NATO towards his borders. And so, you know, he feels that we took advantage of Russia when it was weak, and now he believes it's his turn to turn the tables. And the best way to probably think about how he processes the world is almost think about an organized crime boss. And so he's, you know, essentially been at war with us for the last 10 years. In Russian doctrine, there's sort of a continuum of war that's everything from sabotage and subversion and disinformation and these things we saw, for example, in our 2016 election, trying to influence other countries and destabilize countries, all the way to sort of war fighting and kinetic sort of action. And so he's been trying to undermine us and undermine our relationship with our European allies for like 10 years. And part of the problem is we have continued to, every time he's done something aggressive or negative, we tried to accommodate him or give him a chance to change. And it's now 20 years. We now realize he's never going to change. He hates the United States. He sees us as a, a mortal enemy. He wants us out of his hair. And so part of the problem that we're facing now is we've sort of appeased him and accommodated him over the years. And he's developed this pattern where he can create a crisis, he can escalate a problem, and then look for some sort of accommodation or something to, to, to de-escalate that thing. And so now we're really sort of stuck where we don't have a lot of tools uh, to try to stop what he's doing. He's threatening to you know, invade a neighbor, a large Europe, European country, Ukraine. And we don't have a lot of tools to push back because we haven't pushed back effectively in the past. And so we're really in a, a dangerous situation. I think the administration is trying its best to, to let him know that if, if he takes this, you know, this, this action, there's going to be very, very strong price to pay. But, you know, he's heard us say that before and we haven't done it. Yeah, as I follow Putin and other uh, leaders uh, across the globe, it seems to me he has just, you know, similar in a similar way to Kim Jong-un. Yes. They have a way of saying, look at me, look at me now. I want your attention now, like a toddler who is throwing a tantrum. Whereas other countries tend to do things more covert, covertly behind the scenes, but they're always, they seem to be, uh, to have this routine of, hey, now look at me, now pay attention to me. And this is Vladimir Putin's moment, even though Kim Jong-un seems to be firing off some, some missiles to get attention too. He does, he does. And I think that's part of the problem. I think the administration, and actually previous administrations, have tried to create a thing with Russia that we just have a regularized standard relationship, you know, without a lot of these constant crises. But he's not interested in that. He's actually interested in toppling the cart. He's not happy with the, the security situation, the sort of worldwide, uh, you know, system that we've created in the world. And he's, he wants to, to overthrow that. And so we have a real, a real problem here is, is we, we don't see eye to eye on this. Uh, he tends to like I said, one of the skills of a KGB officer is someone who has a has a nose for weakness and looks for weakness. And I think he believes the West and the United States is weak. You know, we, we were defeated in Afghanistan. We're tremendously inward looking. Americans, I think, are really exhausted of years of wars. We've had, you know, the January 6th incident where we're almost at each other's throats. He thinks we're not paying attention and, and we're not ready to sort of push back effectively. And he also sees in Europe that, you know, the Germans and others are more focused on commerce than and 
building up their their defenses. And so I think he thinks this is a time he can get away with something. And, you know, he may be right. Well, he may be right because pretty clearly there is no appetite in this country for another war. There's not, but I don't think we understand what will happen with a major war in the center of Europe. You know, he, he invades Ukraine. There's going to be massive refugee flows out of out of Ukraine. There's going to be, you know, markets are going to be affected. Business can be affected. The, the shipment of oil is going to be affected. Um, you know, Europe's and the United States have had, you know, tremendous problems just with refugee flows out of Syria and places like that that have created a lot of political problems. It's going to be time, that times 10 with Ukraine. John Seifer, thank you. My pleasure. Always great to talk to you. Alexandra Vakru is executive director of the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies and lecturer on government at Harvard University. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. So what do you think is the end game here for Vladimir Putin? Well, that is the billion dollar question, isn't it? On the one hand, it's entirely possible that he's going to choose to invade Ukraine on the other hand, he could still pull back without much of a loss of face and still have accomplished some important objectives. One of the main things that he wants is to be a player on the global stage. And by getting repeated meetings with Biden, by getting NATO to focus on him, by getting the ambassador in Moscow to deliver a written response to his requests in Moscow this evening, he is already getting a lot of what he wants, which is attention. Yeah, based on what we're seeing it seems to me that he has the upper hand in these negotiations, or is that wrong? I don't think he, uh, he has the upper hand. I think he has what we would call the first mover advantage, which is that he came forward and set his demands and has tried to anchor the discussion at the place where he would like it to end up. But given that some of the things that he and his foreign ministry are asking for are non-starters, the discussion will probably end up in a very different place than where it started. You just get the feeling that he wants to invade Ukraine no matter what. <laughs> I think he'd like to control Ukraine no matter what. That's definitely true. Um, but the question is, is there a less expensive way to get to those results? You think you think that's what he is calculating? Is there a less costly way to get to that result? I think that the the consequences of invading, um, whether it's deep economic sanctions like kicking Russia off of the SWIFT network, SWIFT is a social a, a, it's like a social media platform for banks. And it's used to send information about wire transfers from one bank to another. It has 11,000 members. And it's, it's as I said, like the, the messaging app that banks use to um, line up the financial transactions that they make. And the reason that it's linked with the dollar is not that it moves money. SWIFT doesn't move money. It only moves information. But most transactions, most international transactions go through correspondent banks in the United States, even if it's, let's say, euros to Swedish kroner. Um, the Swedish bank will have a correspondent bank in New York. And um, let's say your French bank that's getting the money has a correspondent bank in New York. And so the Swedish bank will go through New York. The money will actually transit in dollars and then go back into euros. So if you can't use SWIFT 
and you can't access those correspondent banks, you basically can't use dollar transactions. And when this was done to Iran, for example, after the JCPOA was canceled, it, the economy took an enormous hit. Um, I, I think the main objective is to make sure that NATO and the West don't, quote unquote, take over Ukraine. And that is what Russia wants. I don't think Russia really wants to own Ukraine per se. They don't want to be responsible for the Ukrainian economy. If they did, they probably would have already taken over those Eastern separatist regions that they've been supporting. But it's quite convenient for the Russians to have a divided and internally conflicted Ukraine that has been teetering between East and West. They just wanted to lean East to Russia. How do you assess the Biden administration's response to Putin? Well, he's difficult to deal with. Right? No American president has been particularly good at dealing with Putin. Um, and he plays on the fact that the American political system is one that is based on consensus and a balance of power between the executive and the legislative, even when it comes to foreign policy. And the Biden administration is trying to respond in an appropriate way without committing to military action, which really nobody wants in the U.S., so that is a serious constraint, and Russia knows that the U.S. is not going to respond by sending in troops, even though 8,500 troops are now on high alert to go to Eastern Europe. But that is uh, uh, really an, an upper limit on what the Biden administration can do in response. But threatening sanctions, which the U.S. has done for decades now, and they don't seem to rein in Putin's behavior. Um, how is how, how does that solve this crisis? Yeah, I don't think it solves this crisis. I, I am not a big proponent of sanctions. I, I think there are a number of problems with them. Um, one is that once you have sanctions, especially those that are imposed by Congress, they never get lifted. So it's a punishment, but it's not an incentive to change your behavior. Because in many cases, even if the behavior changes, the sanctions are very difficult to list to lift. Um, secondly, the problem is that the sanctions that we have applied have in some cases targeted Putin's inner circle. And frankly, they've really made no difference. They haven't changed the behavior. The idea was that if we make it difficult for Putin's inner circle to travel or to send their kids to study abroad, or to own real estate in Miami, that they were going to conclude that it wasn't that great to be supporting Putin, and they should support someone else. But that hasn't happened. They've remained supporters of Putin. They've uh, done more investing in in Russia, for example, building fancy resorts in Sochi and, uh, and expensive houses. Um, and, and most of these oligarchs have their money only because Putin has put them in a position let's say, running a state corporation that allows them to get revenues and, um, let's say, side deals and perks that they wouldn't have otherwise. So they're basically rich because Putin allowed them to be rich. And he can also pull the plug on their access to those resources. So I, I don't think anyone is necessarily worried about getting killed or like having their family pulled off the streets. You know, that's usually for... Um, political dissidents, people who are in the inner circle who are trying to be less supportive are more likely just to be sidelined and have their assets essentially confiscated. And for these very wealthy people, that that is a serious threat. 
Now, there are other sanctions that could be imposed. One thing that's being talked about is limiting Russia's access to semiconductor chips, which are produced in part in the U.S., and that would make it difficult for Russians to do things like import the latest smartphone. That people wouldn't be so happy about, but I don't think it's going to change foreign policy. The The nuclear option in terms of sanctions is kicking Russia out of what's essentially use of the dollar by removing them from the SWIFT messaging system. And uh, that it would be very serious for the Russian economy. I don't think that the Russians believe that it will come to that in part because that would mean that Europe and Germany could not pay for oil and gas imports, which they need. So that's really the nuclear option. But again, once you impose that, you've got no leverage left because there's kind of nothing worse than that short of military action. From what I've seen, Germany has been sort of lukewarm in its support uh, of NATO in this um confrontation, if you will, with Vladimir Putin. What is wh- What do you think about their approach with new leadership there in Germany? Germany is in a very tricky situation. So on the one hand, the leading parties that are in the leading coalition right now have in their platforms the condition that they're not going to be exporting arms to European countries. Um, and that's one of the reasons why they haven't signed on or approved the transfer of German-made weapons to Ukraine. On the other hand, they've just spent, along with the Russians, billions of dollars building the Nord Stream 2 pipeline to get Russian natural gas from the oil from the gas fields in uh, Siberia to Germany in a way that would eliminate Ukraine as an intermediary. And all that has to be done on that pipeline is to flip the switch. And the Germans would really like to have that natural gas, especially in winter, and to flip the switch. But they are now saying that the viability of that project hangs in the balance of what it depends on what Putin is going to do. And that that is a pretty serious threat, actually. Russia would not like to have Nord Stream 2 um, you know, made useless. So I think Germany has been quite committed in the ways that are possible for it, but is naturally reluctant to get involved militarily, given its history in World War II, and given its dependence on Russian uh, hydrocarbons. I guess people should not be surprised um, by how intertwined uh, national security and business is. That's right. Um, especially in Germany, you know, the U.S. And, and Russia have pretty limited economic ties. I mean, they were never that prominent, but certainly since 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, uh, the level of, of business transactions and trade between the U.S. and Russia is, is very, very small. But Germany is a significant trading partner and, as I mentioned, gets a lot of its natural gas from Russia. And that relationship goes back to the Cold War. Even in the, in the worst periods of the Cold War, the Soviet Union never cut off gas exports to Europe. And that's in part because they depend on those revenues to finance their federal budget. So there's interdependency on both sides between uh, government and business in Russia and in Germany, and also between Russia and Germany itself. Where do you think this goes next? How do you think it ends? Well, that is what we are all wondering. No one knows ultimately if Putin is going to invade. I think he's still keeping all of his options open. Uh, 
as I said, the American ambassador delivered in Moscow this evening the written response to the opening position that the Russians had articulated. We don't know what was in that written response. The Russians haven't uh, said anything yet, and the Americans haven't, haven't either. But British intelligence is reporting that uh, Xi Jinping in China has asked Putin not to be invading Ukraine during the Olympics, uh, so as not to rain on the parade, as it were. So we probably have at least two or three weeks to try and negotiate a solution to this before there is actually a military conflict. Again, business and national security intertwined. Mm -hmm. Golly, I wasn't aware that uh, uh, Xi Jinping was trying to get Putin to hold off until after the Olympics. I did not hear that. Well, that's the rumor. That's the rumor. Okay. That's unconfirmed at this point, but that's what people are saying. Okay. Alexandra, thank you. My pleasure. Max Bergman is a senior fellow at American Progress, where he focuses on Europe, Russia, and U.S. security cooperation. From 2011 to 2017, he served in the U.S. Department of State in a number of different positions, including as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff. Max, you've written about how the U.S. should respond. If Russia invades Ukraine, what do you think the response should be? Well, well, first, thanks for having me on. I, so I think the U.S. is going to have to uh, uh, take really concerted action uh, to deal with Russia. And this is not going to be – there's no sort of silver bullet that we have to immediately cause Vladimir Putin to say, uncle, this is going to have to sort of be a longer-term approach. I think one option that we really don't have is a military option, and I think anyone suggesting it is just uh, fooling themselves – um, there is no military option for the U.S. to come to Ukraine's uh, 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 aid militarily, uh, in part because U.S. forces simply aren't there, and fighting the Russians is not like fighting ISIS or Iraq uh, or Iraqi forces, that we would have a real fight to control the air, sea, and, and, and land. Um, and our forces aren't prepared to go in. So the military option isn't really there. I think we can provide security assistance to Ukraine, as we have been doing and continue to sort of resupply them if there's an insurgency. But the main theater of uh, our response will be the economic one. That is where we have a lot of leverage, and that's where Russia's exposed. And I think it begins with the Russian oligarch class, which are a pillar of the Putin regime, have parked their assets in the West, have bought properties in in Trump condos, they have bought uh, soccer teams like Chelsea, and they can be sanctioned. Uh, I also think Russian banks that are dependent on the Russian uh, Western financial system are really vulnerable. And we can do things like export control reform, export controls, which prevent high-tech uh, uh, systems from going to Russia. So semiconductors, things that are vital to uh, Russian military defense complex, and also, you know, go into iPhones and, and you know, consumer goods like washing machines can, can all be cut off. All of those have to, anyone, any company exporting those systems have to apply for an export license from the Commerce Department, and that can be denied. So we have a lot of tools in our in our toolkit economically, and I think it's about uh, we're going to have to uh, start start using them, uh, and we're going to have to keep up the pressure, not just over the next year, but over the coming years. Well, I've I've heard U.S. officials say in the past that you know with these sanctions, we're 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 not trying to uh, punish the Russian people. 
this is about Vladimir Putin's behavior, but nothing ever seems to change with Putin. He he seems to continue to push forward, uh, whether it's carrying out assassinations overseas or threatening uh, Ukraine uh, or other allies. You know, he he just keeps coming back, no matter how many different sanctions the U.S. levies against his government. Yeah, and I think what we've done in the past, though there was after 2014 when Russia initially invaded Ukraine and seized Crimea and instigated a war in eastern Ukraine, uh, the U.S. and European Union uh, implemented sanctions. Those sanctions had a real effect on the Russian economy, uh, probably limited uh, their GDP by 1.5 to 3%. So that's like pretty meaningful. Uh, But, you know, Putin, the Russian economy sort of absorbed the costs. We've been really reluctant to kind of really ramp things up. We've kind of got distracted during the Trump years, to say the least, and didn't really implement sanctions. So there's a lot of been talk of sanctions, but we haven't forcefully implemented sanctions in kind of a rigorous way. We've done intermittent sanctions against various Kremlin officials so, you know, some guy in the Russian foreign ministry will get sanctioned, um, you know, and that has some deterrent impact, but not really that significantly. And so, you're, you know, your point about how do we kind of put pressure on the Kremlin, and not the Russian people. And I think this is the real dilemma. And this is the problem with sanctions that I think ultimately the objective of U.S. sanctions needs to be to force Vladimir Putin to have to eventually make hard choices between whether he's going to be able to sustain a really robust military industrial complex that eats, that, you know, absorbs a lot of Russian government resources uh, or invest in the Russian economy to, to maintain his popularity. And those two potentially are in conflict. And I think we can tell the Russian public that, look, the sanctions that we are imposing on the Russian economy that are hurting economic growth, that are hurting your livelihoods, are because you, your leadership did something you know, unconscionable. You invaded and dismembered a neighboring country, which is simply not allowed in the post-1945 you know, UN charter world. Uh, and, and I think that will be absorbed by the Russian public. So I think we have to get much more vigorous about just imposing costs on the Kremlin and making it much more difficult for Russia economically to uh, to kind of have the freedom of movement to invest in its military, to invest in uh, and to invest in its economy and force it to make hard choices. Well, we know that it's investing in hackers. That's a that's a fact through uh, the experience this country has 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 seen has has. Um, witnessed i guess since what 2015 or so these cyber attacks the the fact that they allow these criminal hackers to operate in russia you know there is a lot of focus on ukraine and rightly so right now but when you when you talk about vladimir putin and russia's behavior overall you have to look at the cyber attacks as well and the intrusions on us elections no, it's a great point, and I think this is the thing, is that in 2014, 2015, we, we took economic, strong economic sanctions against Russia and imposed real costs, and then we thought that was the end of the story. And then we had our election attacked successfully uh, by the Russians in, in 2016. There's Russian interference politically in, in elections in France and in other places in Europe. 
Uh, and you're right about the the cyber hackers that this is going to be a major. This is already a major problem for not just us but for the global economy. That what Russia's done is basically created a safe haven for kind of these privateer cyber hackers are kind of like the Sir Francis Drake of the time. You know, they go, they steal, and then they pay homage to the state, to, to the Kremlin, and they can be called on by the Russian intelligence services to, you know, cause damage against, uh, against the West, against the United States. Uh, and so this is a real problem. It's an example of why Russia has been, you know, and continues to be an adversary of the United States. And so we're going to have to really be on guard when you know we take action against the russian economy because they're going to look to hit back and and you know we weren't prepared in 2016 uh and we need to really be prepared for what what may come uh but just because russia can respond to us doesn't mean that we should just you know turn turn the cheek to you know russia invading invading ukraine so we're going to have to respond and then we need to be on our toes the fbi can't be asleep at the wheel as it was in 2016 when it barely paid any attention to uh russian interference we need to be our counterintelligence folks need to be very focused on on the russia problem uh in the year ahead and if not the years ahead yeah something else i wanted to get your take on is this is this Putin testing Joe Biden like he tested uh, President Barack Obama. You know, is he trying to push their buttons uh, with Ukraine? Is he trying to distract from something else? Uh, what do you think is is really his strategy? So here? no, I you know I don't think this is about him trying to necessarily test Biden. I think this is. Ultimately, this is not so much about us as it is about Ukraine. And I think what happened was that, you know, Ukraine elected uh, President Zelensky in 2019. Uh, there was some hope, I think, on the Russian side and the Ukrainian side as well, that they could uh, could forge a peace agreement with Zelensky. Zelensky ran as sort of the pro-peace candidate. But what Russia was demanding was simply unacceptable to Ukraine to effectively have a veto over Ukraine's future. Uh, and then the pandemic hit. And I think that sort of delayed plans for a while. I think Russia may have been, you know, thinking about moving sooner um, during the Trump administration, but you know, the pandemic delayed everything. And now, you, I think for uh, President Putin, what he sees is that Ukraine that you, he's lost Ukraine. You know, we like to think of Putin as this sort of master strategist, but actually, you know, he's a tactician that takes risky bets, and sometimes they pay off. And in the case of Ukraine, it hasn't paid off. You know, he intervened militarily in eastern Ukraine. And when you start killing Ukrainian soldiers, it turns the population against you. And that has moved Ukraine further away from Moscow uh, towards Europe and the West. And and Putin simply can't deal with the fact that, you know, as a, as a Russian nationalist that believes in sort of the Russian empire and wants to recreate the gory days of the Soviet Union, that losing Ukraine is sort of anathema to him and would be a major tarnish on his legacy. And what I do think is that when it came to Joe Biden, is that what he was hoping, what he's expecting, was to see a similar response that kind of saw from the U.S. Um, really during the Trump administration, but to some degree during the Obama administration, where there was a strong initial uh, bout of sanctions. We would sort of forego doing really harmful things to the Russian economy, uh, and then we'd sort of forget about it after a year or two, and just sort of move. And then we would move to establish close, uh, you know, better relations, that this would be sort of a temporary thing and we would get over it and not pay too much attention as we're focused on China. 
And I think what I think he's miscalculated because what he's seen, and you can see this in story after story that is sort of leaking from the White House quite deliberately to send a message to the Russians of all the things that they are planning on doing uh, to Russia should it invade Ukraine. And I think that has, you know, probably given Putin some pause, but he has backed himself into a corner uh, because if he backs down now, you know, he set ridiculous demands in diplomatic negotiations that he knew we, the West and the United States couldn't agree to. So he either backs down and loses face or inter, invades Ukraine in its potentially incredible, total catastrophe for the Russian economy and for him and for, you know, uh, most of all the people of Ukraine. Russia had issued a written list of its concerns about the expansion of NATO and related security issues. The U.S. is now, as we record this conversation, issued its formal response to Russia's demands over the crisis uh, along the Ukraine border. So what kind of response do you suspect might make a difference in terms of persuading Vladimir Putin to back away from the border? So, you know, I think this is in my view, and there's a lot of dis, you know, debate and discussion and, you know, there's all sorts of different opinions and they're all valid. In my view, this isn't so much about NATO expansion um, uh, and kind of the threat of NATO. Uh, you know, Russia right now has a veto over Ukraine's membership in NATO because it occupies a portion of Ukraine. There's no way NATO would ever uh, allow Ukraine into NATO because if it did, it would instantly be at war with Russia. So that's simply not going to happen. And I think the U.S. Uh, was very smart in deciding to engage in diplomatic talks. You know, oftentimes Republicans uh, in particular are very critical of efforts as sitting down uh, with the other side. In this case, I think that's what the Russians were hoping for, that we would just sort of say, these demands are ridiculous. We're not talking about them. Uh, because what they were essentially demanding is that we like uh, sort of reverse the NATO expansion that's occurred since 1997, uh, move uh, U.S. And NATO forces out of certain Baltic states. Uh, and that was never going to be acceptable uh, to us. Uh, but yet what we did is we decided, okay, let's sit down. And we said, look, Russia, if you have security concerns about U.S. and NATO military exercises that take place along, you know, nearby Russia's border, uh, if you have military exercise, if you have concerns about um, – uh, about, uh, you know, the the uh, provision of weapons to Ukraine, that's something we can talk about. We can give you greater transparency. Uh, we can talk about some of the treaties that have lapsed, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, the Conventional Forces Europe Treaty, these sort of Cold War era treaties that both sides had sort of walked away from, you know, uh, we can talk about that and try to create, you know, a greater greater transparency. So let's talk about securities. That was what the administration was proposing in, in our European allies. And the Russians seem totally disinterested. And it strikes me that the Russians aren't actually interested in having a security dialogue to make European security stronger and more transparent and make it clear that we're not intending war against Russia, which, they, which we're not, and the Russians know that. That that strikes me as the Russians, you know, really were looking for a pretext um, because this is really about Ukraine's trajectory, a sovereign state not wanting to have anything to do with Russia. So, uh, but we'll see. We'll see what Russia's response is, and the hope is that we can continue to just have diplomatic dialogue and continue to, in that sort of 
you know, cools tensions and that the Russians decide, okay, maybe there's something here. But I, I'm I highly doubtful, and I think the, the White House is highly doubtful that that's actually what the Russians were after. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about domestic politics as it relates to the situation in Ukraine. All right. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Boy, he <laughs> he surprises sometimes. But he praised President Joe Biden in what was an unexpected move. People didn't see it coming. Uh, he said that the president is moving in the right direction in this Russia-Ukraine standoff. Were you surprised to to hear that? Uh, yeah, to some degree. I mean, I think, you know, partisan politics has, has been, you know, a real thorn in the side of the United States in dealing with Russia. Uh, and this was true back in 2016 when President, when then President Barack Obama went to Mitch McConnell and said, we want to do a joint statement condemning Russian interference in the election. This was in September and October of 2016, as Russia was interfering to send a clear message that this was not okay, and McConnell refused to do it. There's been um, really big, you know, uh, clear reporting about this from uh, Washington Post and others. Um, but I think it is a sign that, look, I think it's sort of undeniable that the administration's response has been really quite strong, and McConnell's recognizing that. And I think it's also, my guess is, an effort to sort of demonstrate to the Russians that, that this will be a united front. You know, despite Tucker Carlson going on about why are we backing Ukraine, uh, the fact is most Republicans in Congress have sort of forgotten, you know, the four years under Trump when the administration was fairly, was not fairly, was quite soft on Vladimir Putin um, and have become ardent Russia hawks again. And I think uh, McConnell wants to send a clear message to, to Vladimir Putin as well that if if Russia invades, that that they will back the administration in taking strong responses. And my guess is what you'll see from Congress is an effort to ratchet up those responses uh, even more so, perhaps to such a degree that maybe it's unwise, but I think you'll see uh, a united front from Congress. And I, I, you know, I sort of applaud McConnell for making that statement. The last four years, or let me put it this way, the four years of the Trump administration, did are there some residual consequences uh, of the Trump policy toward Russia being felt now as the Biden administration tries to uh, diffuse the situation in Ukraine? Uh, yes, I mean, I, I I would point to a number of things. First, I think we're not prepared as well as we should be. Uh, in case Russia, you know, in the event that Russia responds in terms of uh, a cyber attack, in terms of um, Russia's espionage capabilities, which we know are quite strong to interfere again in our domestic politics and domestic affairs. And I think we basically wasted four years in not taking um, strong enough steps. And it's pretty clear that agencies like the FBI and others were, you know, frozen and didn't really want to pursue uh, uh, efforts to combat Russian interference. And so that really put us behind the eight ball. And I think the Biden administration came in making that somewhat of a priority, but also distracted by all sorts of other things in terms of COVID, the economy, um, and January 6th. So I think domestically, we're not as resilient or strong as we should be, um, given we've had you know this much time between 2016 and now. Um, but then when it comes to sanctions, you know, we did, we haven't done enough to, uh, uh, I think to really 
um, deleverage ourselves from Russian economic uh, influence. You know, it's not simply that uh, you know uh, if we invoke sanctions on certain aspects of the Russian economy, that could hit our economy as well. So the Russians have a lot of uh, uh, metal producers, and we tried to sanction, for instance, Oleg Deripaska during the Trump administration, I did it very haphazardly, but the guy owns, you know, a major aluminum company and the price of aluminum shot up and that, you know, hurt car, the car manufacturing industry and other factories. So we should really have been taking steps to kind of deleverage from Russia. Um, and I think this is especially true on the European side where, you know, you have Germany double jumbling down on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline during the Trump administration, um, to which is connecting Germany to Russia and piping natural gas. And I think there's a big threat that Russia will cut off the gas flows to Europe in the middle of winter. And that will be extremely difficult for Europe to get by. Um, and given, you know, it's winter and it's cold and Germans need gas to heat their homes. And so I think it's incumbent on Europe and the United States and others to start to deleverage from Russia economically. And that means, I think in the European case, in our case as well, really investing in the decarbonization agenda. You know, renewables are cheaper than anything else right now. Uh, and Germany should be in a wartime like mobilization to uh, to decarbonize and reduce their reliance on Russian gas and Russian oil. And then if we do that, that is the biggest thing that can can really turn the screws on Vladimir Putin, because it's about 50 percent of Russian exports are fossil fuels. And it would crater their economy if you know Europe uh, reduces its dependence and no longer buys uh, Russian fossil fuels. And that's going to take a few years, but I think that's something that we should be starting right away and should have been starting years ago. Max Bergman, thank you. Thank you so much. Justice Stephen Breyer has announced that he will be retiring from the nation's highest court. So now the sprint is on to confirm the next Supreme Court justice. Let's take a few minutes to talk about the future of the court with Jess Braven, who is the Supreme Court correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Jess, thank you for being with us. Pleasure to be here, Jeff. President Biden reiterated this past week that what he said during the campaign, and that is that he will name a black woman to be the next Supreme Court justice. Who are the front runners? Well, there are three names that uh, have been talked about the most. Uh, one of them is uh, Judge uh, Katanji Brown Jackson. She is currently a member of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, a court that has been a feeder court for Supreme Court justices. Uh, she's 51 years old. Uh, she previously was a district judge. Notably, she also was a law clerk for Justice Breyer, and she served on the U.S. Sentencing Commission, which was uh, in many ways uh, a product of uh, Justice Breyer's own uh, policy goals. He helped establish the Sentencing Commission. So she has a lot of ties to the incumbent justice. Uh, another name that has frequently been discussed is uh, she's currently a justice, but on the California Supreme Court, that's Leandra Kruger. She's 45. She was appointed to the uh, California Supreme Court by uh, Governor Jerry Brown. Uh, she was also a uh, clerk at the U.S. Supreme Court for the late Justice John Paul Stevens. She's seen as actually uh, one of the more moderate members on the California uh, Supreme Court. Those two are probably considered the front runners based on their own experience with the U.S. Supreme Court and their 
uh, and the current elevated positions they hold. Uh, but we also have been hearing, uh, particularly recently, about Judge Michelle Childs. She's a federal district judge, that's a trial judge, uh, in uh, South Carolina. Um, she's been a favorite of Congressman Clyburn, who helped uh, of course, uh, President Biden's campaign when it was uh, faltering in uh, during the, the primaries helped him win a, a good victory in South Carolina. And uh, he has been advocating, uh, I guess, the favorite daughter candidate uh, from from South Carolina. So those are the three judges uh, that we, we hear about the most. Uh, you know, uh, there could, of course, be another contender who knows what exactly will happen as the more intense vetting uh, concludes over the next few weeks. Uh, but uh, usually uh, it's the names that we hear about at the beginning that end up uh, in, the, in the final circle. In recent memory, we've heard or we've seen Supreme Court picks take 30 days to be confirmed, 60 days. Should we expect another uh, fairly swift process here, or do you think it, it'll take longer than that? It's likely to be swift, but Justice Breyer... Uh, timed his resignation announcement quite generously for the Senate. He announced here in January uh, what he's going to do. Often uh, justices will announce uh, in April or June that they are stepping down from the bench. Uh, By making the announcement now, uh, he's built in a lot of time for the administration and the Senate to address the vacancy. And he has added that he is going to stay on the job until his successor is confirmed. So, uh, you know, if there were was another hitch, uh, he would still be there, uh, I guess, into the summer. But, uh, you know, the, the, this has been one of the things I think that the Democrats have been united about, uh, preserving the, uh, the dwindling liberal minority on the Supreme Court. Uh, so uh, barring some uh, uh, skeleton in the closet, it, it probably will not be uh, a very long process once the president makes his nomination. Remind us why this pick is so important, given what's on the docket. Well, this pick is so important in the sense that the liberals on an ideologically divided court are now in a uh, very weak position. They have three uh, votes uh, compared to six on the court's right wing, uh, to uh, lose another uh, you know, uh, progressive or, or liberal jurist uh, and leaving that position open for uh, a potential future Republican president to fill would really uh, handicap any chance that they would have of uh, shaping the, the direction of American law. Uh, for for decades and decades. They still uh, are not going to be able to do that on this particular court, but it at least will uh, preserve the current uh, ideological uh, formula that uh, that we see. Uh, In some ways, though, it is not as significant uh, a vacancy to fill as that of uh, uh, the late Justice Ginsburg or or Justice uh, Kennedy, who retired in 2018, there you saw a change in direction. Justice Kennedy was uh, mainly considered a center-right judge. Uh, a much more conservative successor was selected, Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And that is even more true uh, with uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett replacing the late Justice Ginsburg. She is uh, you know, sort of an, an opposite of Justice Ginsburg on many, many legal questions. The fact that Stephen Breyer chose this moment 
to step down, given that, you know, uh, Supreme Court watchers say he's still sharp, he's still good at what he does, he's still very active. Uh, Why do you think he picked now? Is it a sign that he is paying attention to the politics of all this? I think that uh, Justice Breyer uh, is is well aware of the politics of this. For one, justices, uh, as 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 one uh, retired justice uh, once said, uh, you know, they they go home uh, with the the date that brung them. Uh, they they tend to want to retire so a president of the same party can pick a successor. That's also true, incidentally, with. Uh, Lower court judges, circuit judges, and district judges typically do the same thing. So that's one uh, factor. Uh, uh, he, I think he is also quite well aware of the situation that uh, liberal judges are in now on the Supreme Court. Uh, he's been there as uh, uh, with the with the, the change from from Justice Ginsburg, in, in particular. Um, so I don't think, you know, in some ways, uh, despite all the pressure that he received and all the op-eds and all the uh, attention about, you know, when will Breyer retire and all this kind of uh, stuff that we, we certainly saw in, in Washington and, and in uh, opinion pages, my sense is that this was pretty much his, his timeline all along. I mean, you know, you can look at the calendar like anybody else. He's 83 years old. Uh, this is a current moment when uh, a Democratic president, who he knows and has some regard for, he knew him on the Senate Judiciary Committee when he worked there, uh, can make a selection. Uh, that selection will likely be confirmed. Uh, and that's not what happened when Justice Scalia died and President Obama nominated Merrick Garland. The Senate uh, Republicans, then in the majority, wouldn't give Garland a hearing and kept that seat vacant for nearly a year so President Trump could fill it. Breyer has been aware of this stuff all along, uh, and he's you know he's got access to a calendar. So I think he knows, like like many people, that once you uh, hit your ninth uh, decade. Uh, every day is, is a blessing, uh, as it is for all of us, but, uh, perhaps it's, uh, you know, you, you're not going to count on, you know, another several decades uh, potentially of service. In the days since this information broke, uh, let's see, it went public on Wednesday of this past week. And then Thursday, the president, uh, made the announcement with Justice Breyer. We haven't heard an awful lot from Republicans, which leads me to this question. Could the Republicans do something uh, to delay this confirmation hearing? Uh, the Republicans really don't have much they can do uh, unless a at least one unless they remain united and at least one Democratic senator uh, defects uh, uh, on on the question. Partly that's their own doing. Uh, when uh, when President Trump nominated Justice Gorsuch, the Republicans uh, abolished uh, the filibuster rule for Supreme Court nominees. I mean, they said it was payback to the Democrats who abolished the filibuster rule for lower court judges. I mean, there was a lot of you know finger pointing, but uh, but the fact remains that they got rid of this last rule that preserved minority power uh, or influence over Supreme Court nominations. Uh, and they uh, made the Democrats basically uh, utterly helpless uh, in the confirmation process uh, during President Trump's term. So there aren't really any Senate rules that remain that the Republicans could uh, deploy. Uh, 
uh, unless, of course, they get uh, enough defections or one defection from the Democrats and all 50 Republicans uh, hang together. And that's not a, a guarantee, incidentally, that all of them will. I mean, some, uh, you know, three of them voted for uh, Judge Jackson when uh, she was nominated for the, the circuit court. Uh, you know, that means they certainly uh, potentially could vote for her again if she's being elevated to the Supreme Court. We'll have to see. Is that why you think she may be, or at least I think, based on what I'm seeing, based on what I'm reading, is that why she could be the front runner among the front runners because she was just confirmed as a circuit court judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia? That is, yes, because she's, you know, uh, and, and, and not only did she get at least a few Republican votes when she was confirmed for the, the D.C. Circuit to, to succeed, incidentally, Merrick Garland when he uh, became uh, attorney general. Uh, not only that, there's also vetting that goes on. Uh, she's been twice confirmed by the Senate, once for the district court and then again for the circuit court. So there's been uh, background checks and all that kind of stuff has, has already happened. Uh, you know, she's been a federal judge for a while and she has appellate experience. I mean, there was a time when senators or, or, or governors would get appointed to the Supreme Court uh, even without judicial experience. That hasn't happened in many decades uh, with, with rare exception, one being Elena Kagan. Uh, every justice has served as a federal circuit judge prior to being on the Supreme Court. So uh, she fits that profile. Uh, she also, you know, being a former law clerk to Justice Breyer, Justice Breyer has a pretty good reputation among Republicans. Uh, he was, uh, they, they supported him largely when he was confirmed. Uh, the the Breyer uh, imprimatur may help her. And she has the academic pedigree uh, as well with uh, undergraduate and law degrees from from Harvard University. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's there's nothing obvious that would say she's not qualified for this job, uh, you know, other than, uh, if, I mean, if you're a Republican, you just don't want Democratic presidents putting people on the Supreme Court. I mean, you know, but that's the situation that they're in. So uh, if, if they have any objection to her beyond the fact that she is going to be more liberal than uh, a nominee they would like, uh, and that she is being selected by uh, President Biden, if they, if they have some objection other than that, uh, it would be interesting to, to, to see what it is. And it's going to be interesting to watch in the coming weeks and months. Jess Braven, Supreme Court correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you. Hey, it's a pleasure, Jeff. That is This Week's America Change Forever, thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. Download and review this podcast. Check your local listings to see when the show airs on your favorite radio station, and you can also listen every Saturday on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Change Forever. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura. 
No murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promised to keep you safe. They killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pura. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now, ad-free, on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.